All right, well, let's get rolling since we got everybody in here. Um, so tonight, we are going to be looking at uh, several chunks of Scripture. Some of that's going to be in Deuteronomy chapter 1, um, and we're going to spend some time in Ruth. But everything else I'm just going to reference, and you'll just have to get your running shoes on because we're going to be going back and forth. Um, so before we get going, I want to pray, and then we will dive into where we are heading for tonight. So let's pray together. Father, I thank you that we have everything we need for life and godliness because we have your spirit residing in us for those who have trusted in your son, that we have those around us in community who are um, holding us accountable to the things that we know that we are supposed to do and that we have your word. And so, Father, I thank you for the fact that we do have your word and for the countless number of copyists and scribes who have been dedicated to the craft of making sure that we have reliable texts in front of us. And so, Father, as we endeavor to look at reliable texts, we pray that you would send your Holy Spirit to help us make good observations and then make right interpretations as a result of that. And so, Father, we pray that that would happen tonight. And as is my custom, I would just ask that you would take a couple of seconds and pray for me that the things I say would be accurate and it would be beneficial, it would be clear, and that uh, God would use what I would say. So if you could, just take a moment and pray for me. Father, I pray that as we begin to talk about something that is that constitutes over half of the Bible tonight, I pray that the words that I say will be clear and the ideas that we are discussing uh, would make sense, that what I say would be beneficial and helpful, and that we would be able to apply what we learned tonight uh, immediately. And ultimately, Father, I pray that you would send your spirit um, for me, even tonight, that as I am talking, that I would say nothing that's out of harmony with the gospel and nothing that is factually incorrect. And so, Father, we pray that that would happen for our benefit and for your glory. And we pray all this in your son's name. Amen. All right. So, <clears throat> let's get a running start for where we have been and where we are going. Um, we have spent the last five weeks looking at basically... Um, introductory material. So we spent the first night kind of looking at the whole semester, and then the next four weeks we spent talking about the Bible's formation and organization, how we got the Bible in the form that we have it today, and then we spent two weeks talking about interpretive principles, so general guidelines about how we read all of Scripture. And what we said is for the next nine weeks or the next nine times that we meet or so, we are really going to be talking about individual genres of literature. Tonight is the first night that we're actually diving into a specific genre. And so we're going to be looking at narrative. Um, sometimes that's called historical narrative. Same thing. Whenever we are talking about narrative, um, this is a big chunk of scripture. And so we need to have our minds wrapped around this in a fairly good way to be able to understand a huge portion of scripture. So that's where we've been. Where we're going right now is uh, tonight we're going to talk about the general characteristics of the narrative genre. We're going to talk about the idea of prescriptive versus descriptive texts. Um, if you've never heard that phrase, don't worry about it. We're going to talk all about it. Um, and then I'm going to give us seven helpful tips about how to interpret um, narrative genre literature. Uh, and then we're going to look at Ruth as an example, put into practice what we've talked about. Yep. So, as a running start from the last two weeks, here's some main ideas that we need to have in our head as we move forward. Is that number one, the Holy Spirit 
aids believers in the process of making right interpretation. So as a believer in Jesus, we need to pray and prepare whenever we are approaching Scripture that He would help us and illuminate our hearts and our minds so that we might rightly understand what it is that He has written for our benefit. Last week, we really talked about the meta-narrative of the Bible, and another way to talk about that is to say it's the big picture, the big story of the Bible, and that we believe the Bible is a unified story about Jesus that leads to Jesus, yeah? So that's a massive thing that we need to keep in mind whenever we are reading the narrative genre, because when you're in the Old Testament, Jesus' name doesn't show up a whole lot. So you've got to be able to take this idea and import it into the Old Testament so we can see that big picture. Um, last week, we really talked about how important it is for us to apply Scripture. So every time we encounter it, we've got to come with this idea that we need to seek to apply it into our lives. And then lastly, we talked about how identifying a genre helps the most, is the biggest aid that we have in interpreting rightly what it is that we're reading. Yeah? Word? All right. So, let us talk about some general characteristics of narratives. So, you didn't get all that? I've got it for you later. It's recorded right back here. I will help you out, Sue. So, let me ask you all this question. What is narrative or how would you describe a narrative? What is that? What am I talking about? A story. A story. Okay. Somebody else. An oral story. Why would you make the distinction between oral or written, or would you? Okay, I like that. In fact, whenever we get to Deuteronomy chapter 1, we're going to see the narrator of Deuteronomy speak up, um, and he's just kind of hanging out in the background, and we're going to have to see that whenever we encounter it. So we have a narrator, right, whenever we talk about narrative. It's not a bad way to think about it. What else? What else pops into your mind whenever you hear the word narrative? What was that? Instruction. How so? When you say narrative pops into your head, instruction, um, how did you get to that point there, Charlie? Because I think you're right. I, I want to hear you say it. That's your question? So how, does narrative, how is narrative an instruction for us? Is that kind of what, is that what you're asking? Yeah. yeah. Well, lucky for you, I'm actually going to answer that exact question. So if I don't, in the next two slides, raise your hand, come stomp on my toe or whatever. Get my attention. We'll get there. Anything else? Whenever I say narrative, what other words come into your head when you hear the word narrative? Story. Story. Do any other words along the lines of story stick out to us? A beginning, a middle, an end, yeah? So, I mean, like, if you're teaching elementary age kids, like, good stories have a beginning that is clear and a middle that you can understand that it's separate from the other parts and there's an end, yeah? We're going to talk about that as well. So, here is what I want to do. I want to just describe what we mean by narrative, and this is where I'm telling you, uh, two weeks ago, we are now endeavoring to talk about things that you already know, and all I'm doing is just giving some language around it so that we can wrap our heads around these bigger concepts when we jam it all together. So here's the first thing. Narratives often include sequential accounting of events, okay? 
It is a sequential accounting of events. Not always. Go read John, and you'll see that his uh, narrative, his gospel account, is different than the synoptics, the Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And he kind of messes with the chronology at times. But generally, there's a sequential accounting. And I use that word specifically. I want to draw a distinction between stories and accounts. What is the difference between a story and an account? Or a historical account? Does that make it um, a little more clear? Or does that change the meaning in any way? Go ahead, Jenny. Facts. Whenever we say accounts, I am talking about historical stories, yes, but I want to guard against this idea of mythologizing the Bible. Adam and Eve is a historical accounting. This is not the historical story or the story of Adam and Eve. <clears throat> I will even slip into using the word story when I rightly should use the word account, okay? The gospel accounts, right? Um, whenever we are doing our small group, excuse me, <clears throat> when we're doing our small group discussions on Sunday mornings, a lot of the questions, if you ever listen to those, if you've heard those questions, I normally talk about Paul's accounting of whatever it is. And that's just to draw a sharp line between mythologizing the content and actually saying like, no, these are historically accurate things because we are building on those uh, fundamentals that we talked about with interpretive principles and Bible organization in that we believe the Bible is inerrant. We believe that it speaks truth about these things. So when it gives a historical sequential accounting of events, don't call it a story, call it an account. And I think that'll help clue us in to how important this is. Yeah? Whenever we are looking at narratives, there are going to be literary guideposts that indicate that there has been a change in time or location. And you hear me say that and you're like, yes, of course. But what I would argue is when we get to reading, especially the Old Testament, we will blow right past every one of those historical um, guideposts that tell us that we've changed the time frame or we've changed the setting or something along those lines. To that fact, let's look at Deuteronomy chapter 1. Deuteronomy chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. We're going to look at this in more detail a little bit later, but let's just pick it up there. Deuteronomy is after Numbers ends and the chronology. They are about to go into the land. And before the nation of Israel goes into the land, they have this second giving of the law where Moses recounts everything that's happened up until that point, basically. This is how chapter 1, verse 1 starts off. These are the words that Moses spoke to all Israel beyond the Jordan in the wilderness in the Arabah opposite Suf between Paran and Tophiel, Laban and Hezeroth and Dizahab. Okay? Did you hear any literary guideposts? Right? Now, if you keep reading verses 2, 3, 4, and 5, you're going to run into several more. Let's just look real quickly. It is 11 days journey from, from Horeb by way of Mount Seir to Kadesh Barnea in the 40th year on the first day of the 11th month. Are you hearing the chronology and the guideposts, right? Whenever we are rolling through Exodus, 
there's all sorts of times where Exodus is going to cover like a huge chunk of time and then it'll slow down and it'll look at a week and then it'll speed up for a month and then it'll talk about one night and then it'll look forward to like a week and then it'll cover like almost a year. If we're not paying attention to that, you're not going to have a clue as to what is actually going on, right? And so just my, my estimation is that I think we just blow right past a lot of those guideposts. But if we slow down and we know to look for them, I guarantee you're going to be able to interpret rightly a lot better because you're making good observations. Yeah? So, he uses these literary guideposts. We are going to look at a whole lot more. Let me give you a couple more examples. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 1. You don't have to turn there. I'm just going to read it for you. 2 Samuel 7, 1. Now, gives you a little bit of time frame. Now, when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all of his surrounding enemies... And then he goes on to tell what David did. Yeah? So the king is in his house now. Well, that tells you that previously he was not and that there was now peace where there wasn't before. You can look in Mark chapter 2, verses 23. One Sabbath, when he, Jesus, was going through the grain fields, as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck the heads of grain. If you know the rest of that story, you know people flip their wig, Right? Why do they flip their wig? Because they're picking grains of head, or uh, grains of, uh, off the head of the stalks whenever they're walking by. Why are they mad? Because it's a Sabbath. And we're like, well, that's an obvious thing. Like, yes, but so is Deuteronomy 1, and we would just blow right past every one of those guideposts because we're trying to get to what, what the Scripture's really about. And what I'm saying is, that is the only way you are rightly going to interpret what that Scripture is about by seeing those guideposts, Yeah. Prayerfully prepare, which leads to good observations, which means we can now make right interpretations to then leverage towards legitimate application. That's the process. We have to make good observations. Here's the last part. Narratives account for about 60% of the Bible. Okay? If this is not that big of a deal, then we can just blow right past it. Well, if it's 60% of the entire book, we probably should pay attention. Let me give you a quick list of books that are primarily... Um, narrative. Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts. 20 books. Those 20 books constitute about 60% of the entire Bible. I don't think we get to punt on how to rightly read 60% of the Bible. Yeah? So, again, most of this or things that we already know. I'm just trying to give us a little uh, a methodical way of leveraging what we know to make better observations and right applications, or excuse me, good interpretations and legitimate applications, yeah? So, here's the question. Why do we see narratives so frequently in the Bible? Why do we see narratives so frequently? You tell me. Why not some other version of literature? Why not some other genre? Have you ever considered that? It's a weird question to ask, but I feel like it's a right one. It's a good one to ask. Yes, sir. Oh, we got, hang on. Are you using narrative as a type of genre? I'm sorry, can you say that again? You, you just use narrative as a type of genre. Yes. Narrative as a genre. Yes. As I described, that it uses literary guideposts that tell us to change the setting and time. It's normally a logical, like sequential accounting of events. 
the way that I'm describing genre from two weeks ago and last week, this, this is where we're landing with genres. It's a subset of a kind of literature. No, yeah. No. Okay. Anybody, why do we see so much narrative in, in the Bible? They are instructions. You're telling me we learn from stories? If the Bible's that important, why didn't God just say, okay, y'all do this? Application. application. How is there application in narrative? If you remember from last week, we talked about that commands are not the only type of scripture that demands obedience or application. In fact, I listed seven other areas or other types of writings that demand obedience. Narrative would be one of those, okay? Oh. Your wife, man, you're just walking right over. Go ahead, Rich. Okay. By one person in a big group, and so it was a kind of a way for them to hear it and remember what it, what was going on. Okay. Some meaning. Of it. So whenever we are talking about a um, a form of instruction, and people don't have either the ability to read or the means to have scripture in front of them, how else are they going to remember? Well, they're going to have it read out loud to them, and they're going to memorize it. Incidentally, why do we see so many guideposts that tell us that we've changed time, setting, or character? It's because we've now completely changed where we are in that account. The story, as it were, has changed scenes, and so we gotta let people know so that they can be able to remember it. That's good. Okay. Excellent. So God's story is scripture told through narrative. It's, it is recounting how God works in human history. Is that a good way to kind of summarize what you were saying there? It shows how God operates in the world? Yeah. Let me ask you this. How many of y'all know what Aesop's fables are? Do you know who Aesop is? And everyone's like, no. Aesop was a Greek slave in like the 5th or 6th century BC, and he wrote down a whole bunch of these stories that normally involved two or more animals that acted and spoke like humans, and they always had a meaning behind it, okay? Uh, Leanne, what do we use Aesop's fables, or more generally, what do we use fables for? To teach. Who do we use that to teach? Like, who are we teaching whenever we're using fables more times than not? Children. We are all kids. We're all children. We all need every help we can when it comes to understanding what God is doing in the world. And so, he's going to use everything at his disposal, including poetry, including wisdom literature, including prophecy, including narratives that we're going to be talking about here. So, like, that's didactic. We're going to talk about that here in just a bit. Narratives are didactic. 
they teach by nature stories. If you're talking about fables or historical accounts in scripture, they teach us something. In fact, I want to read this quote from Daniel Doriani here in uh, this book, Getting the Message. He says this, Biblical narratives convey lessons about life under the blessings and curses of the covenant. More important still, Jenny, more important still, they describe the redemptive acts of God. They describe, I would add, in detail, detail, the redemptive acts of God. Whenever you're looking at um, Exodus chapter 14, you see the people of God are fleeing from Egypt and they're stuck between a rock and a hard place. They're stuck between the Red Sea and Pharaoh's army. And if you read that account, the tension is just building and building and building and building because like, they're about to die, every one of them. And then God acts, right? Like the whole point is that it's going to describe the redemptive acts of God. So narratives are didactic, Charlie. They teach. They are instruction. If 60% of the Bible is narrative and they are meant to teach us, well, then we better do our best to understand how to get that message quickly and well, right? Here's the next thing I want us to see about why we um, see so much narratives uh, in Scripture and what we're supposed to do with it. Here's just a little tip. The reader is directly addressed very infrequently. Very infrequently will, will the author step aside from writing out the account or the narrator telling this account and then say, hey, uh, tribe of Judah or uh, the church at wherever. Like very infrequently will we see the author addressing the reader. Now, when we get to the New Testament letters, that is directly that author writing to a specific audience. But we have to transpose that to us, right? But in narratives, very infrequently will we see the author step out and then directly address us. This is where we see that narratives show us much more than they tell us. Are you tracking with that? Whenever we talk about narratives that are um, showing more than telling, when you look at good movies and good storytelling on TV and movies, the rule is always show me, don't tell me. If you have some guy who's narrating, you know, Bobby was angry and then it shows a guy smashing something. Like you could have just shown him smashing something and you would be like, oh, he's angry. Are you tracking with that? So whenever we get to narratives, whenever we stretch this out more and more, it's going to show us much more than it tells us. Here's the next thing. Specific truths, this is where it comes back to our comments over here and then uh, with Charlie in the back. Specific truths are taught through the various details that are given in the narrative. Let me give us a couple of examples. Actually, I'll hold off on that because we're going to talk about it here in a bit. Disregard that. There are specific truths that are meant to be taught through the narrative. And if you miss the details, you're going to miss the point that's being made. Yeah? And then lastly, here's the biggest thing that I think is good for us to see right out the gate. We need to read larger chunks of narratives to rightly get the point that they're trying to make. If we want to make good observations, we're not going to just read one or two verses. You probably need to read maybe two chapters. And the problem with that is chapters in the Old Testament are much longer than chapters in the New Testament. Unless you're reading like the Psalms. Yeah? And so we just need to read bigger chunks. All right. So let me ask this question then. If we believe that Scripture is inerrant and it is infallible and that 
God has written down for us what it is that he feels that we need, then what we do then is we just read what the Bible says and then we just go and do likewise, correct? That's as simple as it is. Is that right? And of course the answer to that is, well, no. Like there's more to it than that. I am trying to trick you. You're right. See, you're picking up on this, Sue. You're all over it. All right, I'm going to look at Judges chapter 11. Say again. You are tracking. That's good for you. I'm glad. You're, uh, you're smelling what I'm stepping in? And there it is. Judges chapter 11, starting in verse 30. I'm going to read this for us. You don't have to turn there. And this is going to prove the point. We need to read bigger chunks. Judges chapter 11, verse 30. And Jephthah, who was a judge made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will give me the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. So Jephthah is here saying, God, if you just give me victory in the battle that's coming up, whenever I get home and there is peace, whatever comes out the door first, I'll offer as a burnt offering. Okay? Verse 32, so Jephthah crossed over, the Ammon, over to the Ammonites to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand. And he struck them from Aora to the neighborhood of Mineth, 20 cities, and as far as abel Karamin with a great blow. And so the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. What is the lesson from this account right there? That if we just make a vow to God, he will give you whatever you vowed. He will give you whatever you want, right? Is that the right lesson to learn from this? Because if you only read those, uh, what is that, four, three verses, you're going to be in hot water because verse 34 says this, Then Jephthah came to his home at Mitzvah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dancers, and she was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. Verse 35, And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low. You have brought me very low. Okay, yeah. You have brought me very low, and you have become the cause of great trouble for me, for I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. What then is the thing we are being shown and not necessarily told in those brief verses about Jephthah. What's the lesson to learn now? So now it's the exact opposite of the lesson that we could have learned if we'd have stopped two verses earlier. Earlier we would have said, no, God will give it to you if you just vow and he'll do it. And now we're saying, actually, probably you shouldn't make a vow like that because you don't really know how this is going to turn out, right? It's like the Oracle of Delphi, whenever this great king goes and says, hey, I want to go to war. Is this going to work out in my favor? And the Oracle tells him, a great kingdom will be destroyed. And he's like, excellent. And then he goes to war. And what happens? His kingdom is destroyed, right? You don't know how this is going to turn out. And so the lesson is, don't make a rash vow. In fact, if you go to Judges 11, your Bible, if it has subheadings, might even have Jephthah's harsh or rash vow. But if we only read the first three verses, you would have made the wrong, wrong interpretation completely because you didn't read enough to make good observations. Yeah? So, here's what we need to see. 
Narratives contain both descriptive and prescriptive language. It has language that simply describes what happened, which is what Judges 11 is, and then there are texts that prescribe, they tell you, you should go and do this. Is Judges 11, this little brief section that we read, is that prescriptive? Does it say we should go and make vows? And the answer is, not like that, that's for sure. It is simply describing what is going on. Um, we actually talked about this, Sue, I think two or three weeks ago. You asked um, a question and I said, actually, if you look in the Bible, anytime that there are accounts of polygamy, does it ever end really, really well for the people involved? And the answer generally is absolutely not. It, it just generally does not work out that way. Narratives are going to show you how bad the consequences are. Sarah and Hagar. Hey, Abram, you can't have a kid. Take my handmaiden. We're not even halfway through the chapter, and Sarah is already fighting this chick. They're already at, it, at wit's end with each other. Like, we didn't even get out of the chapter, and it already went bad. Right? You can keep following that storyline, and you can see the Bible is going to show us, not necessarily tell us. And when you're dealing with narrative, you might need to read a whole chapter or maybe two to get to that point. Yeah? So, it's going to contain prescriptive and descriptive language. And here's the thing. Biblical authors generally don't editorialize for us. They don't take a step out of the context of that narrative and then say, hey, by the way, you, you should or shouldn't do this thing. Okay? There are times where when we see that, that's a marker for us, but that's going to be really important for us. The primary way that narratives teach is through detailing the events of the account and that we have to see the narrative as a whole and then make our assessment of whether this is prescriptive, describing what we should do, or if it's descriptive language, it's just describing what actually happened. Any questions at this point? So I feel like whenever we see that clear divide, that there are prescriptive and descriptive portions of Scripture, I think that kind of opens up a whole new world as to what we do with some of those weird narratives that we read. Yeah? Any questions? Yes, Lindsay. Yes. That sounds like a crazy story, but so does this. If you're telling me this one is supposed to do with this, yes. how do you, I mean, I think sometimes we take it for granted that we just sort of know. Okay. So yeah, we're not supposed to do that. But how do you explain that? Yep. So the question is, what do we do with weird texts? And how do we describe what is going on in that scripture to someone who is either a believer and is worried about, should I go and do likewise or should I not? or even if somebody is skeptical or they're not a believer, and they're just asking, how do you know if this is prescriptive or descriptive? Number one, I would say this. If you are a believer in Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit residing within you, and that is going to be the thing that makes the difference in every one of these scenarios. Like You have what is necessary to spiritually comprehend what is written for our benefit. You can go look in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and 3, and then 2 Corinthians Two, I think, off the top of my head. 
Both of those places, Paul talks about that these things are spiritually discerned. If you do not have the Holy Spirit residing in you, you are spiritually dead. And if you are spiritually dead, you will not grasp the totality of the spiritual um, meaning and uh, interpretation of that text. So, like, just number one, we got to say that right out the gate. And that's perfectly fine for us to admit. How then do we go, okay, we'll put some... Give me some handles to hold on to. Cool. Whenever we look in Scripture, there are going to be times where, especially from the Old Testament, we talked about if we cannot bridge the gap between something that seems out of context historically or culturally for us, we look for those timeless principles and lift them out and then apply it to today. In a similar way, whenever we look at some of these narratives that kind of have some wild elements to the story, you can lift out the primary actions and then lay it across the rest of the Bible and say, where are there times where the scripture does in fact say, go and do likewise, and then say, does this actually match where the Bible says, go and do this? If it does match that action, then you can say, hey, that's prescriptive language because it accords with the rest of Scripture. If it is something that is obviously at ends with Scripture, whenever you see over and over polygamy is going disastrously, there are those markers in the narrative, that's how it's teaching, to say this is not good. The problem is, to prove that, you kind of have to go to another narrative that does the same thing, and we're right back at square one. Like, yeah, but you're using this narrative to say that one is... Um, descriptive, and now you're saying this one's descriptive, okay, well then we go to another one. And like, I totally get that that's a problem. That's at least three so far. Um, I understand that that can be a bit of a problem, and that's why I start off by saying, if you don't have the Holy Spirit residing within you, this is going to be a difficult tax, or a test, uh, task. There we go, that's the word I'm looking for. It's going to be a difficult task. Does that help in any way of like giving a little bit more detail about how we analyze a text to determine whether it is prescriptive or descriptive? Because sometimes it's pretty obvious. Jephthah, if you read those six verses as a whole, you're like, yeah, don't do that. Just because it contains that doesn't mean we should go and do it. Other times, it's a little more dicey, and that's where we have to apply the rest of our other interpretive principles about seeing it in its context, knowing historically and culturally what's going on. That's why all this is kind of mashed up together. Other questions? Ed, yes, sir. I think so. Yeah. Perfect example. Let's just turn there right now. Go to First Corinthians chapter seven. First Corinthians chapter seven is a fascinating uh, section of t of uh, the letter to the Corinthians because let's just say this right out the gate: Paul is inspired by the Holy Spirit. He is absolutely inspired. That means what he writes is authoritative. He believes it's authoritative. But there are times when he is directly addressing his audience. So we're getting another element here of him directly addressing them. He actually clues them in into the, 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 uh, the precise nature of where this stuff is coming from. Let's pick it up in, let's pick it up in verse 5. This is principles of marriage and singleness. Do not deprive one another except perhaps for agreement, speaking of uh, sexual relations between a husband and a wife, except by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Then verse 6, now as a concession, not a command, I say this. So there are times that Paul, in his address of whoever he's writing to, he will clearly say, 
guys, like, there is some wisdom that's going to have to be applied here. This is what I'm saying. This isn't a command, so it doesn't apply in all situations for all time in every way. I say this, and he goes on to say, I wish that all were as myself, but that each one has his own gift, that one has one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single, as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Then, verse 10, to the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. So then he's, he's saying, no, no, this is for everybody, not I, but the Lord. So there are times that he does delineate that. But there's going to be a pretty clear indication that that's what's going on. You teed me up. That's good. Does that answer the question? And you'll see that in the Gospels at times as well, where there will be this little editorializing that comes out. Cool? All right, so let me give us seven general guidelines or tips for how to interpret narrative texts. Number one, God is always the hero in the Bible. God is. This is a unified story. All books of the Bible, Old and New Testament, across 40 authors and 3,500 years or 1,500 years worth of, uh, of being written and compiled. Yeah? God is the hero of Scripture. When we read the story of David and Goliath, David is not you, and your problems are not Goliath, and that you are killing your problems. That is not the story. That is not the account. What we see through narratives is this is describing God's redemptive acts for his people. And it just so happens to come across with this little kid and some rocks. We could make great observations and say, oh, he went and got select number of smooth stones from the creek. You know what I need to do? I need to go get me some smooth stones and carry them around in my pocket. Okay, great. If you derive some kind of spiritual benefit to remember, to rely upon God during difficult times, okay, rock on. But if you're saying, no, 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 all of us need to be getting rocks, put them in your pockets. Yeah, rock on. I don't know if that's, I don't know if that's the right thing we need to do, right? So, God is always the hero of the Bible. I'm loving this. See, y'all, y'all are making jokes, but y'all are going to start saying the same things I say. It's already started. I think you've seen some of that in the office. My microphone just died. Can you grab me, or actually, Grace, I may need some AA batteries in the, just two of them. I had full power earlier. Talk amongst yourselves for a moment. I know we've got some in the office, in there in the copy room. Sorry. Other questions while we're just sitting here? Um, I, I kind of lost my voice. So you have to interpret. I'll yell for you. Um, Grace found a really neat image the other day uh, a visualization of the cross references of the Bible. I don't know if you've seen that. With all the different colors? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so whoever's question was that earlier, the, the power of all of these things, it seems like a silly story at the time and in its own context, but the power of the story of the Bible where God is a hero and the story mm-hmm. of Jesus is that cross-referencing back and forth throughout Scripture that it, it binds everything together. Yeah, and what makes that all the more just radically impressive is that when you see all those cross-references from the Old Testament to the New, where there's literally direct quotations or there are um, allusions to Scripture or stories that are being used in a really precise way, then you add on top of that that these folks were literal millennia apart and that they were writing from 40 different authors 
like it just gets more and more wild. Ooh, there we are. It just gets more and more wild the more that we see the interconnectedness of Scripture we start seeing that David is not the hero. In fact, what do we know about David? In part because of polygamy and all his several wives and crazy things that happened with him. How does his story end? Not well. The people of God are living in peace and prosperity. And then Nathan rolls into his house and says, Hey man, the sword's never going to depart from your house because of what you've done. And then we get one more generation with Solomon and then instantly it gets cracked in half, right? But God's the, God's the hero in this, not David. David is going to fail us. Adam is not the hero. Moses, or excuse me, Abraham is not the hero. Any of his kids are not he, the hero. Moses is not the hero. The prophets are not the heroes. When we see Jesus, we see him actually doing the very thing that we need a hero to do. God is the hero. Yeah? All right, so that's our first tip. God is always the hero. Number two, pay attention to the context and setting. This is my favorite one. This is what I told you, Mike, that I was going to have you read and just plow right through all these names. We're going to go back to Deuteronomy chapter 1. We're going to keep reading because there is some great detail in here that, frankly, we will miss. Remember, Numbers, they're out in the wilderness for 40 years. This is immediately after that. Then we get Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 1, all the way through verse 5. These are the words that Moses spoke to all Israel beyond the Jordan in the wilderness in the Arabah, opposite Suf, between Paran and Tophel, Laban, uh, Laban, Hezeroth, and Dizahab. Where they are at, verse 2, it is 11 days' journey from Horeb. What is Horeb? What is Mount Horeb? It's just another name for Mount Sinai. What happened at Mount Sinai? He gets the law. And they keep reading, verse 2, It is eleven days' journey from Horeb by way of Mount Seir to Kadesh Barnea. What did the narrator just tell us? They are eleven days' journey from where they got the law. Verse 3, in the fortieth year. What's going on there? What's the narrator trying to get us to understand? The narrator is speaking from on the western side of the Jordan saying, these are the words that Moses spoke over there. And when they were over there, this is what would have been 11 days journey, but now we're in the 40th year. What is the narrator setting up for us? He's saying, hey, you remember that story of numbers, the whole thing? Yeah, that's where we're at. Yeah? So whenever you see that context, let's drive on from there. In the 40th year, the first day of the 11th month, Moses spoke to the people of Israel according to all that the Lord had given him in the commandment to them after he had defeated Sihon, king of the Amorites, who lived in Heshbon, and Og, the king of Bashan, who lived in Ashtaroth, and Edri, beyond the Jordan. All right, so we're having these markers. In the land of Moab, Moses undertook to explain this law, saying... How is it that the narrator is saying beyond the Jordan, where is the narrator now? He's in the promised land. Moses isn't. So the audience that's being addressed in the, in the narrative here is over on this side, but there's hope. And how do we know there's hope? Because the narrator is saying, I'm on this end. We're in the land. And this is what Moses did say. Deuteronomy will end with what? What happens in Deuteronomy chapter 32, 34 range? Moses dies. 
Where does he die? Somewhere. We don't know. Up on the mountain. No one knows where his body is. Right? But he's on the outside looking in. The narrator is on the inside saying this is what happened. So you have to pay attention to the context and the setting. And isn't that a subtle dig? Hey, it was an 11 day journey. You could have walked there in less than two weeks and it took them 40 years, right? That tells us the setting and the context. Moving on. Number three, we need to identify where there is tension or conflict, a climax and resolution. Is there a beginning of the good storytelling? Is there a middle and is there an end? If you can identify where that tension is and where it comes to a head and then how it is resolved, you are now gonna be able to be more aptly equipped to make good observations, yeah? Um, yes, that just kind of gives us the contours of good storytelling. Moving on, number four. When there are editorial comments, Take note of them. So Ed, when you asked us, Paul, give us these editorial comments? Absolutely. Let's look at 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 50. David and Goliath. This is after David has killed Goliath. This is what Samuel writes. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Like We're talking about what did happen and with what. And then there's this really offhand comment about, and there's no sword in the hand of David. Why is that comment there? What is it doing for us? It shows that God's the hero, not David. He didn't have a sword. He had a rock. And that comment that kind of steps out of the narrative, you can even see it, um, I believe it's with the wow consecutive, like the story kind of halts for a moment in the Hebrew, and then it picks right back up in verse 51. Okay? So, there's editorial comments there. In John 6, 6, this is the story of feeding the 5,000. Um, after we're saying, hey, there's all these people who are coming to us, how are we going to feed them? And then Jesus turns to his boys and goes, what are y'all going to do? What are you going to do about it? John writes this, he, Jesus, said this to test them, for he himself knew what he would do. So that is the Apostle John giving us an editorial comment going like, hey, watch this. Like, he's going he's gonna to blow their mind. He's asking them because he knows what he's going to do. Cool? So then there's this kid who comes up. He's got a couple scrawny fish and some bread, right? And then the, the narrative continues. But there's that editorial comment that's telling us there's something big that's about to happen. Pay attention. They're not there very frequently, but when they are there, you need to take note of it. Yeah? Here's number five. Pay attention to portions of Scripture that have lots of details. If you go look in Mark chapter 5, there is this detail of the account of Jesus healing the Gerasene demoniac. This is the guy that's ate up with demons, legion, right? Uh, the 2,000 pigs all die and all that good jazz. So if you go and read Mark 5, 1 through 20, you will get that account. The first... Um, Five verses are dedicated to describing this one man who is ate up with these demons. 25% of the narrative is describing one person. That's Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. Verses 1 through 5 are all about giving details about this one dude. He was bound by shackles. 
and chains and he would wrench them apart and he was always crying out and he is always cutting himself. He lives among the tombs and up on the mountains and no one could damazzo, tame him. No one could dominate him. We roll on in Mark, who doesn't give us a ton of detail, and he is just firing them off. And he's firing them off because he wants us to notice how big a deal it is that when we see him in verse 20 and later in Luke 8, I believe, he is seated, clothed, and in his right mind at the feet of Jesus. Pay attention to those areas that have tons of detail. Narratives teach us through the details, so pay attention to them. On top of that, Pay attention when you see that there's a lot of recognition, or excuse me, a lot of repetition. If there are key words or key phrases, pay attention to that because they're going to keep getting repeated. In that same passage in Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20, in verse 10, 12, 17, and 18, the word parakalao, the word to, to beg or to earnestly make a request of somebody is used four different times. It's used by the demons, legion, twice in verse 10 and verse 12. It's used by the townspeople in verse 17 when they beg Jesus to leave, and then the well man in verse 18 begs Jesus that he can come with him. Four times in 20 verses, we see that word beg. Like, that is some repetition that if you read the rest of Mark 5 or Mark as a whole, you're not going to run into a whole lot of that use of that word. It's because it's trying to teach us by saying, hey, when you're hearing this being told out loud, as Rich said, there's some things that are going to grab your attention over and over, and that's what drives home the meaning of the story. Yes? And so when you read it, look for details and look for repetition. Here's the last one. Don't simply moralize a narrative. Don't moralize it. Narratives show us the progressive revelation of how God saves his, peace, his people and works in history. That's what the Doriani quote was from page 75. That is how he shows his redemptive acts. If we boil David and Goliath down to, God will just take care of you. I think you've, you've missed the grander narrative of how God is providing not just for his people and these people that are terrified in front of this giant, this insurmountable obstacle in front of them, and we've just reduced it down to, well, God will take care of you. Like, we haven't done justice to all the rest of the detail that's located in that narrative. Yes? So don't just simply moralize something. Yeah? All right, and the last little bit, we're going to try to put this into practice. Let's go look at Ruth. Ruth. Ruth is some good stuff. You get to Joshua, then to Judges, and after the Judges, you hit Ruth, and right before you get to 1 Samuel. Here's the first thing I'll just say. One, Ruth is a self-contained and compact account. Without looking, does anybody have a stab, want to take a stab at how long Ruth is? How many chapters? It's four chapters. But yet, we cover this huge span of time. So you better be paying attention to the context and the setting and the guideposts that the author, likely Samuel, wrote for us so that we would know what's going on. So it's a self-contained, compact um, account that is going to give us its setting in Ruth 1.1 and it's basically going to bridge the gap between all of Judges to 1 Samuel. Okay? So let's just hold that in our head. Let's read 1.1. In the days when the Judges ruled, there you go. There is your historical, contextual time frame. This is when the judges are roaming around. 
So that means there's no king. That means there's probably likely upheaval constantly, that there's like people coming in and raiding the people of God, taking them off, killing a bunch of them, getting their stuff, and then God finally delivers them through a judge. Yeah? So that kind of tells us what's going on here. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine. Okay. And in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab and his wife and his two sons. Verse 2. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Mahlon and Shehalon. That's the Hebrew words right there. You just blow right past. So this guy has got his wife, Naomi, and two of his sons. There's a famine in the land where Israel is, so they go across the river, they go to Moab, and they're going to stay there. Well, you see the passage of time, some things kick up, and basically their sons end up marrying these two uh, Moabite women, one Orpha and the other Ruth. And things are great until they're not, right? Let's pick it up there in verse 3. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. Verse 4. These, the two sons, took Moabite wives. The, one, the name of the one was Orpha, and the name of the other Ruth. And they lived there about ten years. There's our another guidepost. And then both the sons died in verse 5. Wow. And so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. There is something that's really crazy about Ruth, the book of Ruth. If you keep reading it, do you know who actually sits as the one who's addressed more times than not in all of Ruth? Ruth is like the primary character we see going along. But Naomi is actually like the main character that we're actually meant to learn something from. We'll see that at the very end of the book here in a bit. Because the, her husband dies, her two children die, but then we're really focusing on Naomi. And then she eventually sends her daughters out um, and says, hey, my sons are dead. I'm going to try to go back home. I'm going to figure something out. Y'all can just go back to your people. And Orpha says, got it. I'll see you later. And Ruth says, wherever you go, I go. Whoever your God is, he's going to be my God. I am with you to the end. And so we see that the setting is established there in verse 1, and that they go. There's this famine there for 10 years. But then look at verse 6. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law. Now we're moving. They go back to the land. Whenever you keep following this story through, you start seeing a whole lot of tension. Right now, where is the tension or where is the conflict here in the beginning of the story? There's a couple of places, so just name them out. I heard somebody say it. They're widowed. All of them, right? Every female character so far is now a widow. What else? What other tension do we see? What other conflict do we see? There's a famine. That's why they left. Incidentally, if you know the rest of Ruth, what do we see Ruth doing with Boaz later on? She's in the fields. That means there's food now. Hmm. Do you think maybe that the author of Ruth is trying to teach us that here in the land that there has now been provision and that Naomi and Ruth are being provided for, that the famine is over and that we're starting to see that? But at no point do we really see the author go, hey guys, like, come in, take a knee. God's going to take care of this. Cool? And then we get back to the narrative. Like, that doesn't happen. It just tells us through the narrative. So, 
There's the conflict. We see that there is all the widowing. We see all the famine that's taken place, yes? And then we need to observe that there's provision for Ruth. Whenever you look in chapter 2, verse 1, Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man, not some worthless, useless dude, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech. So he is of the same clan as her former husband, right? Her late husband. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. So for whatever Ruth does or doesn't know, she knows enough to say, Well, hey, he's close to us. And if I can go in there and get something, like that's better than nothing. What do you say, Naomi? And Naomi goes, Have at it and stick close to the, the ladies. A little bit later on, Boaz sees her and she's out there hard working. And some of uh, his servants come up to her, uh, come up to him, and he's like, "Who is that?" And they're like, "Oh, it's it's Naomi's daughter-in-law." It's like wild story, Moabitess, but she's out here working. And then Boaz is like, "Hey, keep an eye on her. Make sure nobody messes with her." And you can see this provision for Ruth. But when we take a big step back and remember that God is the hero of the story, what should we be seeing? It's not just go hard work and go get in the field and God will take care of you. Like, no, no, no. God is the one who's taking care of them all along. Yes? And you keep driving on from there. Let's look at verse 9 and 10. <clears throat> this is Boaz speaking to Ruth. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping. Go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? I'm going to take care of you. Verse 10. She fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? And that word for foreigner is laden with meaning. And it's actually referencing all the way back to Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers whenever God, through Moses, is telling the people, like, hey, y'all are sojourners, and so whenever you have someone among you who is a foreigner and they want to submit, you treat them like they're one of you. And so here she is saying, what, what right do I have to claim that you could take care of me? I'm a foreigner. And Boaz, who's righteous, goes... No, I gotcha. And we see the rest of that story unfold in chapters 2 and 3. There's some wild stuff that happens. I'm not going to deny it, right? Wild stuff that happens. However, where do we see the resolution of the conflict? Whenever you pick it up in chapter 4, uh, let's pick it up in chapter 4, verse 1. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer. There's actually a closer relative. Oh no, there's more tension. So we get to this climax where Boaz says, hey, I'm going to redeem Naomi and her family, and I'm going to marry Ruth. But it turns out there's someone who's actually closer in relation to him, and he's got to work around that. So he says, hey, do you want to do this? Because if you take over that land, you've got to marry Ruth. And this guy's like, nah, not for me. And Boaz says, fine, I'll do it. Here's my shoe. Right? <laughs> That's basically what happens, right? And then he redeems this family. Pick it up there in verse, uh, let's look at verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife and he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Verse 14, pay attention to this. And the women said to Naomi, hang on, I thought we were talking about Ruth and Boaz here. But now, all of a sudden, the women who are seeing this thing take place, they are speaking to Naomi. They said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. Well, technically, yes, because this man is providing for her whole family, but this man married Naomi, or I'm sorry, Ruth, not Naomi. 
but we're meant to see that God is the one who is orchestrating all of these events, yeah? And his name may be known in Israel. So the whole point of them saying, hey, God has provided you with a redeemer and that Ruth is now married and they have a son, that's proof that God's at work for all of Israel. But you're right. The scripture is not one unified story that demonstrates the redemptive acts of God that we're not supposed to catch in narratives. It's right there. Keep going a little bit further. Verse 17. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to... Wrong. Not Naomi. She doesn't have a son. It's Ruth. But what's the point? This Israelite woman who is blessed by God, who is of the people of God, comes back and she is in a horrible spot in Moab and comes back home and there's this redeemer for her family. Yes, are you seeing the theme here? And that it's as though that through Ruth's son, this cat named Obed, that there's this great proclamation of how God, does, uh, how God provides for his people in all of Israel. Verse 21. Actually, no, let's just keep going in verse 17. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi, and they called his name Obed. Okay, so what? Well, Obed fathered Jesse. Okay, who cares? And Jesse's the father of? And we have to see that full context to be able to see why are we even worried about this random family from Nowheresville who goes across the river to a place they shouldn't have been and then come back? It's because that's where we get David. And whenever you go to the gospel accounts and there's this genealogy of Jesus, who shows up? Ruth. So you who are outside of God's care because you're not part of the people of God, there's Ruth. There's also Rahab, a prostitute who shows up. So you think you're too far? What about Ruth? Oh, you think you're too far? What about Rahab? That's how we got Jesus, because it's a unified story that leads to Jesus. And that's how we read narratives. So I'm already out of time, but I will take questions. Yeah, I am. My mic dying and then me answering questions along the way really got us there. So what questions do you have? Comments, concerns? What you got? Does this help us in understanding narratives a little bit better? Sue, yes ma'am. Those are just seven guidelines or tips. And if you need a little more time to write those down, when we get done here, I'll put them back up there. Sue's got them too. Sue Foot, she got every one of them. It's all going to be online. Yes, ma'am. You're doing well. You're you're right here with us, man. You're the one holding this thing together. We have, incidentally, this many weeks. We've got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven more weeks. Yep. So December seventh is our last week of actual content. That's what we're going to talk about: Daniel and Revelation. Any other questions about narrative genre in general? All right, so next week we're going to be looking at, what did I say here? I've got wisdom literature. We're going to be talking about wisdom literature, and by that I generally mean Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job. 
We're going to have a whole week devoted to uh, the proverbial genre, so we're going to have a whole week devoted to Proverbs, but we're going to look at the wisdom literature as a whole with Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job, because my contention is we have to read all three to get a picture of what a well-lived life looks like. So we're going to talk about the characteristics of that genre, and we're going to look at Job as an example, which Job is one of my favorite books in the Bible, and it is rough, and it's one of my favorites. So... All right, let me pray for us, and then we'll be done. Father, I thank you that as we have endeavored to look at something that is uh, describing 60% of the Bible, God, I pray that you would use my words um, as short as they may fall, and that by your Spirit, you will drive down into our hearts what it is that we're supposed to learn. Uh, so, Father, we give you this. We pray that you would uh, cause us to learn what it is that you want us to learn, and that by your Spirit's power, we would be able to apply it into our lives. And we ask that we would be able to do this for our benefit and the edification of those around us and for your glory. And we ask this in your son's name. Amen. If you need more notes or get them, put them back up there, I'll get them for you.